was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole Series 3, Episode 4. Today's episode is a very special one as we return to our formula from Series 1 and present a review of a James Bond film. Yes, a novel concept for a Bond podcast. The time has finally arrived to cast our eyes and thoughts on No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's fifth and final Bond adventure. We must make it clear at the outset that this is a review that will contain spoilers. So if you don't know what happens and you don't want to know what happens, please pause the audio now and consider listening to an episode in our back catalogue. Interviews with Jim Dowdle and BJ Amritrasher are among my favourites, but the choice is entirely yours and we'll welcome you back with open arms to this episode once you're up to speed. Of course, there are plenty of talking points with this new film, so we'd love to hear your comments, thoughts and questions. You can get in touch with us through the usual channels. We're under the handle More Cubby over on Twitter and under our full show title on Instagram and Facebook, as well as being available via email, rogermorescubbyhole.com at gmail.com so we very much look forward to hearing from you well there's no time to delay let's jump straight into this one with the usual hosting team firstly he's a man who rumor has it can drink cup after cup of Sefin's poison tea with no ill effects it's adam how are you adam i'm very well thank you martin yeah i've got an ironclad stomach and nothing that mr freddie mercury himself could possibly try and poison me with is going to have any effect very strange that this film's finally come out because, of course, it not coming out all those months ago led to us launching this podcast. And we're now two and a half series in and, and it's finally here. Kind of caught, it kind of snuck up on me a little bit, actually, when it finally did get here. But but yeah, very great that it has come out and great that actually they didn't go the streaming route. Not that I think they could have afforded to in the end, that they did hold out the cinematic release. And actually, by the look at it, it, it will hopefully reinvigorate a lot of cinema going in the country as well, which hasn't really recovered post-pandemic. But from the early signs, it looks like it might well do. So kudos to them for holding out and doing that after all is said and done. And secondly, he's a man who rejected the glitz and glamour of the Royal Albert Hall premiere with David Zeritsky and Calvin Dyson. He preferred to watch it on his own in a 10 a.m. showing in Edinburgh. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, I'm very well. Thanks, Martin. Um, really looking forward to being back. Of course, it's um, it feels like it's been a little bit of time away, but no, really looking forward to getting our teeth into um, into No Time to Die. I did enjoy the uh, the Royal Albert Hall premiere actually, although I didn't actually go to it in person. I did see the uh, you know the live feed from the um, the red carpet. I was a bit confused where Daniel Craig got his um, velvet suit from, though. I think did he maybe nick that from Whisper's wardrobe? Yeah, yeah. To be honest, like having been to the Royal Albert Hall, that was probably the worst possible place to see this film because the acoustics in there are notoriously bad. So no one at that premiere would probably have been able to hear very much about it. On Daniel Craig's jacket, I, I did hear actually it was meant to uh, go through a colouring process to turn it black ahead of the premiere, but sadly he had no time to die. He's here all week, ladies and gentlemen. 
I did just want to quickly mention as well, I haven't actually mentioned this yet, but we'd normally do our shout outs at this point of the show. It's a little bit of a special one this time because this podcast that was started by three mates um, because of No Time to Die being delayed has now exceeded actually 1,000 followers on Twitter. So I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody that's been getting behind the show and, and your kind messages. And we do really appreciate all the support you give us on all our social media platforms but particularly on twitter where you know the bond twitter fan base is so diverse and and so richly supported so just a massive thank you to everybody that's been getting involved with the show and and, you know thank you for your support it's always really appreciated to us we are the best so we start the episode with a welcome return of the film synopsis segment And this time it's the rather unenviable task of condensing the longest ever Bond film into a couple of minutes. But if anyone can do it, it's this deadly duo. It's over to Adam and Alan. I don't know about a couple of minutes, but let's hustle. So, No Time to Die, the 25th James Bond film. It's title taken actually from a 1958 film produced by Albert R. Broccoli and directed by Terence Young, ahead of Dr. No from Russia with Love and Thunderball. Directing this is Kari Joji Fukunaga. He also co-writes along with longtime Bond writing duo Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, and indeed Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the first female uh, hand in the screenwriting process since Joanna Harwood, back on the first two films. Uh, it's the fifth and final Bond film for Daniel Craig. It is, as we've said, the longest ever James Bond film at 163 minutes. And it's also the second longest gap between Bond films, thanks to the three delays due to the pandemic. Only the time between License to Kill and Goldeneye was longer. Budget of this film are projected $301 million, so around the same as Spectre, uh, based on its opening weekend, on course to be the biggest uh, international weekend release, excluding for a film not opened in China. So huge projections of profitability. We'll see how it ultimately does. But first, to find out what happens in this film, and a lot happens in it, Here's Alan. Do you see Daniel Craig's down the gun barrel? Bang! Was an old blood dribbling down. Kabuki Freddie Mercury does an impression of Jason from Friday the 13th and bumps off young Maddie Swan's layabout French mom. Back in the present, her and Bond are noshing off in an impossibly beautiful Italian town. Bond visits Vesper's grave because apparently he's still not bloody over her, but it blows up and some spectre people wreck yet another Aston Martin. Seriously, I'm surprised they still insure him on them. And Bond's so livid, he dumps matters on the world's slowest train. QV Eilish and a greatest hits title sequence. Five years later, you're keeping up. Spectre agents armed with crazy magnets bump off Mock the Week legend Hugh Dennis and kidnap Dr. Borat and his DNA bio-warfare weapon of death. In Jamaica, Felix Leiter, who really looks like he's let himself go a bit, gets Bond to help him find Dr. Borat. But new 007 Nomi stuffs up Bond's Range Rover and tells him to bloody well back off because she's the daddy round here now. He doesn't, and in Cuba, he teams up with poke-swilling Megabay Paloma to break into a spectre-meeting blow as he's somehow running from Belmarsh Prison. But Dr. Borat uses his mental nanobots to wipe out literally all of Spectre, and he's whisked off by grinning beach hunk Logan Ash, who only goes and finishes off Felix, the useless idiot. Back in London, Bond gives them a right telling off over Dr. Borat, crashes Paddington Q's weird Japanese pad on date night, learns bloody mad as his blower's secret psychologist, and then accidentally bumps off blowers because he got the DNA Megadev stuff on his hands. Jesus, there's a higher body count in this than Hamlet. 
Bond goes to see Madders in Norway. And oh my God, she's had his daughter. She's got his steely blue eyes and everything. Bond awkwardly peels his French kid Matilda an apple, but the baddies are on the way. So he smashes up a load more Range Rovers, who are now probably thinking they shouldn't have sponsored this film, and takes out Logan Ash for turning Lighter's lights out. But Freddie Mercury's back, and he kidnaps Madders and Tilly. Bond and Nomi, who's been pretty useless this far, team up to break into Freddie Mercury's Japanese island garden of Megadeth. Nomi kills Dr. Borat, Bond kills basically everyone else, Nomi and Madders and Tilly get the hell out of Dodge, and Bond for some reason has to stay and open a massive trapdoor that missiles somehow can't blow up. And oh my god, Freddie Mercury shot him! And oh my god, he smashed his face with a weird sci-fi Megadeth virus, meaning he can't go near Madders or Tilly ever again. Bond shoots Freddy, bids farewell to Madders and Paddington Q, Louis Armstrong starts up, the rockets come in, and he's dead. The end. Thank you very much, Adam and Alan. So where on earth do we start with this one? Perhaps there's only one place to start, something I thought I'd never see in the franchise. They did it. They really did. They killed him. They killed Hugh Dennis. It was positively shocking at the, the beginning of the film, wasn't it? Oh, I, I was outraged. I was, you know, Hugh Dennis, that you know, that icon of, of British comedy being brought in to be potentially a, a groundbreaking character in the Bond franchise and he's dead within two minutes. You know, it's it's an outrage. It's an absolute disgrace. Um, no, that's, I, I think there's so much to unpack with this film. I think that you kind of have to break it down into almost into bullet points of what the, the purpose of the film is. And, I, and for me, I wouldn't say that I completely hate the whole thing, but I think that there are things... No, but there are things... Adam is making faces at me, but there are things that I like about this film and there are definite things that I dislike. The things that I like, obviously, the cinematography... As ever, it's always on point with the Daniel Craig films. You know, even with Quantum, it was it, not as good as perhaps Casino Royale. But, you know, we've seen since Skyfall, really, they have really raised the bar with the quality of the cinematography. I think that certainly the action is, you know, it's, it's indicative of what a Bond film should be. You know, there's a lot of really good stunt sequences, a lot of really good action sequences. Um, I also don't mind the fact that they have tried to an extent, to put a bit more comedy into it. So in terms of, you know, Daniel Craig has a few more quips in this one as his finale. So I, I think that he did those well. But the trouble is, my biggest problems with this film is that it felt like... I mean, I can sort of see what Kari Fukunaga was trying to do with it, but the trouble is, it feels like he was almost trying to make On A Majesty's Secret Service for a modern audience to me. That's what it feels like. Because, you know, you get this opening where they're driving through this Italian hillside and you know it's it's playing we have all the time in the world and you know even with the plot the idea that Safin is using chemical warfare and you know and this this kind of new technology to try and wipe out the vast majority of the the world's population on the grounds of revenge you know okay so it's not a direct comparison to Honor Majesties but it feels like that was kind of the template that we're using but it it doesn't work because Honor Majesties is a standalone film in my opinion I mean I was I was going to ask this in Q branch because I think it is a really pertinent question but where does the franchise go from here because obviously in the ending we're led to believe that Bond is dead so what happens now what you know what is this moving forwards 
don't know. I mean, I mean, we'll see. It's it's entirely possible. It's it's the last one, and they're just not going to do it anymore. I mean, you know, Broccoli, Al, uh, Michael G. Wilson, they're older now. They might just decide, okay, we don't really want to recast it. That's it. At the same time, I guess the thing with the Daniel Craig era is that it has definitively broken from canon, hasn't it? Like, you know, you can sort of roughly believe that the Connery to Brosnan is the same guy, and that's sort of built in. Daniel Craig, you sort of could to an extent if you kind of take Casino Royale and Quantum's prequels and Skyfall as maybe happening then towards the end of his career after all of the other films. But then I think with Spectre, the fact that Spectre is reinvented and those same characters sort of come back, I think, and, and particularly with the ending here, this now feels like these five films are sort of separate from everything else. If they do make others, it's it's likely that they'll just take the same approach. They'll just completely restart from scratch. And it's just that the character we all know and love just starts again anew in a new era. Um, it's interesting what you say about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, because the film is very, very dependent on that film to give it the poignancy that it needs. And that's sort of the main problem with the ending, which we'll come to, is it's trying to piggyback the residual tragedy of that film to drive you towards what happens in this one. I mean, it's there in that we have all the time in the world is adopted as Bond and Swan's thing rather than Tr Bond and Tracy's thing. But looking, stepping back for a sec, I think this is a film of two halves. I think the first half of this film is really terrific, actually. The things that I said about Spectre, which I really liked, are that it feels like a classic traditional Bond for the modern era. It's spectacular. It feels epic. The action sequences have sort of been reinvented anew, not in the likeness of Bourne. And actually, this film, as you've sort of mentioned, Phil, builds on that. It's moved away from the chilly cinematography of Hoyter Van Hoytemer, and it's really sunny and bright and colourful. It's a Linus Sangren, I think, shot it, who did La La Land. So that's where that's coming from. And of course, Phoebe Waller-Bridge having given the script a bit of a gloss over means it is a lot funnier, which again is a definite and I think very positive course correction from Spectre. And so as a look at what a Bond film in the 21st century, which is also a traditional Bond film, looks like, I think actually the first half of this film is a great example of that. The problem is the second half of the film, which gets way too bogged down in the same thing that kind of threatened to derail Spectre, although I didn't agree that it did, which is trying to wrap up the whole Daniel Craig era into some retrospective full five film arc. And I just don't think it works. I admire risk-taking Bond, I really do. And the first of the big twists in this, I actually thought was great. The second one, I don't think the film earned at all. And so for me, therefore, this is by no means a bad Bond film. It's going to be one that'll take a while to digest because it's so radical in its finish. But ultimately, for me, not as good as the previous two films. And perhaps, dare I say it, Craig falls into that classic Bond actor mistake of staying probably one film too long. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what you said there, Adam. I think for me, the uh, the pre-title sequence, especially if we can start with that one, I thought was superb. Maybe my favourite pre-title sequence. I know some people on social media have been mentioning one of the negatives of the film was that it felt unbondian. Uh, but for me, that pre-title sequence felt unbondian, but it was probably the best bit of the film. You got the, the creepiness of the villain. Um, establishing the villain in that kind of way was really, really good. Uh, it's just a shame that we don't really see Rami Malek too much. Apart from that, I expected him to burst into uh, somebody to love in the middle when he was looking sad. That might have made it more exciting. But the pre-title sequence, I think, was excellently shot. 
brilliant cinematography and really got you pumped up for the film, didn't it? And I guess the race around Italy may be ruined slightly by all of the trailers that we had, but still really action-packed and uh, and certainly got you pumped up, didn't it, for the uh, for the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right, Martin, with the horror aspect of it, because it certainly where Safin is kind of trudging across the, you know, the frozen emptiness of, of I believe it's Norway, where obviously where Madeline and her mum are staying. And obviously we get that point that, you know, kind of she owes Safin her life. So this does sort of explain the start of the plot of the film. And, and I do agree about Matera as well. You know, the, the, we always love the kind of Italian backdrops when they're in a Bond film, even when it's, you know, even with Moonraker, when it was the Bondler going through Venice, even then it was, you know, the, the architecture was amazing. Um, you know, and there are there are positives as well. I know I have been quite negative about it, but I, I do agree that the action sequences, it always pushes the envelope, um, which is what a Bond film always should do. You know, they should always be trying something new. And I do respect them for what they were trying to do with this. It's just, I think there, there are a lot of controversial moments throughout the film, not just the ending. I think there are a lot of moments in it where it's, you know, where obviously you're not expecting it, but I think it's kind of twists for the sake of putting twists in, I think. I think the, just to return to the opening, I think the other thing it does really well is it really sells you, A, on Madeline Swan as a completely fully rounded character, justified in being brought back and still playing a major role. And I think it sells you on her romance with Bond as well. I mean, all that stuff before the big Bondian chase sequence in Italy, it sells you on the sexy, colourful, luxurious romance of the two of them, but also on the fact that they're sort of still working through these issues. He's told her about Vespa, she hasn't told him about the stuff that we are privy to with Lon Masque, the masked man, Freddie Mercury, find me somebody to love. But I think, yeah, it all contributes to just really nailing those characters together and their relationship. And so by the end of the sequence, when Bond is just absolutely devastated at having felt he's been betrayed again, of having let his guard down again, and he's just sat there in the Aston waiting potentially for the bullets to finally break through and for Spectre to eliminate her, it really sells you on that psychotic edge that he's had. He handles that betrayal very well. And also that lovely scene of just putting her on the train at the end. I think it really effectively puts the stakes on that relationship. Yeah, the uh, the chemistry is far better than Daniel Craig and Catherine Tate's nan, isn't it? That's what I was worried about. I don't know if I've had Hugh Dennis in it, I wouldn't have been so surprised if Catherine Tate's nan had just turned up halfway through offering biscuits. It's a shame, really, Hugh Dennis Bice. He could almost have been a better, uh, good idea for a new queue, couldn't he? I think Ben Wishaw sort of said he's not coming back as well, as you assume none of them are. Uh, he's also probably an addition from Phoebe Waller-Bridge because he plays a very prominent role in Fleabag. And so I wonder if she somehow maybe wrote him into it or kind of had him in mind for that character. Um, and, you know, I, I think getting her in has really done a great service to the film in terms of it adding real comedy zingers to it. That, as you say, we haven't really seen in Craig before and was lacking. He was accused of being humorless in his upper outings. And that is course corrected in this. The, the sort of strange thing about getting her, of course, is, is she is sort of held up as one of the great female British screenwriters of our time. And I'm not entirely sure that the female characters in this, Madeline aside, are particularly revolutionary. I don't think it matters particularly in the case of um, Paloma, Anna de Armas, who gets the best scene in the film. But as for Nomi, the Lashana Lynch character, after all the controversy and the press surrounding her coming in, a strangely uncharismatic and dull uh, part for her, I thought. Yeah, I think you're totally right, Adam. I, I don't really think that Nomi as a character really 
kind of does a huge amount really i mean you know she she's sort of brought in to investigate safin and and to investigate where the nanobots are, are kind of being used and it's and it seems like she's very kind of not i mean you look at the by contrast you look at you know the impact of felix Leiter with jeffrey wright or you look at logan ash you know as, as the, one of the henchmen and they seem to although they're probably in the film for just as long they seem to have more of an impact in terms of how the film progresses because of what happens. And it seems like, you know, Nomi has a part to play in it, but it seems to be a very, it's almost like a bit part cameo. I think it's that thing you'd kind of need her to come back and have more of an active role in, in future missions. Yeah, I think we saw enough of her. We don't need any more film. I actually, I quite enjoyed the way that they used the other character, the secondary characters of MI6, and I quite liked the way the beginning started. We weren't sure whose side was on who, or who was on whose side. Of course, M is treated with suspicion, and I quite like the fact that we get Bond and Lighter together. Kind of Bond is joining the CIA against the MI6 forces. Maybe if that had played out a little bit longer, that might have been a bit better. I and mean, we might have seen a bit more of Lashana Lynch's Nomi character. Uh, but I think the obviously the necessities of the plot meant that it kind of zipped to the next bit already. And, uh, and obviously M was not the complete bad guy that we, uh, that we might have assumed at the beginning. So yeah, I think I, I enjoyed the way that they used those characters. And of course, we saw Q's home as well, his, his lovely cats. See, I did yeah. quite enjoy that. Yeah. Sorry, you... Oh no, I was getting, yeah, the strange Japanese sort of influences around his home as well. Obviously, writ large, then when we get to uh, the island of poison death or whatever it is, which is sort of between Japan and Russia later. And obviously, Safin's kind of in full kimono, lots of Japanese architecture behind him. But yeah, I mean, Ben Whishaw's always great in these films. So good that they just give him a bit of comedy to do. Also, his reaction when he's summoned to M's office and Bond is in there and he does that, oh, Bond, I, I didn't know you were here. And it just gives him that look. It's a great little moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Nomi thing is interesting because it almost would have been better if she does outsmart and outfight Bond pretty consistently through the film, i.e. she is just better than him. And she isn't. I mean, Bond takes the scientist away from under her. She's way too late in Norway when Logan Ash and Sapping crop up to do the kidnapping to be in any way effective. And strangely, she, she starts out being very envious of Bond and, and of him being the former 007 and, and having a point to prove. And she kind of turns to respect him without him really having done anything apart from give her the lead to, to Logan Ash. And, and so it is quite odds and unfulfilled I guess in terms of the dynamic between those two because I thought coming in it was going to be Spy Who Loved Me it was going to be they're having to team up they're doing this mission together and it's really awkward because she's the new younger 007 and he's a bit of a fuddy-duddy and it's very strange that they didn't do that it seemed like an absolute open goal and ultimately you are left lacking the charisma and the jokes of Halle Berry aren't you let's face it you miss her now I'm not sure we do, Adam. I'm not sure we do. <laughs> I thought it was weird that she was kind of getting jealous, wasn't she? When she was still 007, she was asking M, well, what 00 number is he? It's like she believes Phil's theory about 001 being the best, and <laughs> she was scared he was 001. You see? You see? To bring it back to a female character who is great, let's talk Anna de Armas as a Paloma, because, of course, her and Daniel Craig get along very well. They were a great double act in Knives Out. Uh, and they spark off each other brilliantly in this. I think that whole Cuba sequence is the best thing in the film. I think it's so funny and it's so surprising and really visually kinetic and interesting and builds up to a, a real gut punch, of course, with Felix. 
I mean, the only minor thing with the Cuban scene is obviously the fact that, you know, Blofeld is somehow having a party for himself, even though he's in Belmarsh prison. This is probably the thing that irritates me most about this film, actually, is that flaming bionic eye. Who the hell thought that was a good idea? This feels like it was becoming a little bit towards like science fiction. It feels like it was becoming, you know, a bit unbelievable. I can understand if they wanted to go down the route of, you know, it's a chemical warfare plot and it's the idea that Safin is out to, you know, to mass murder half the population. But when it's, you know, when, when you're talking about nanobots and this idea that it can corrupt people's DNA and then obviously it wipes out people that way, it's you're starting to get beyond the realms of what is believable, I think. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Phil, because the reviews I've read so far like that character. And I was thinking, what the hell is he doing? But it is very die another day, I feel, the robotic eye. And also those magnets, they were very die another day, weren't they? You know, I completely forgot about those, actually. Yeah, they were going to come up in the gadget section. We're not science fiction, we're in fact science fact. No. I will say, though, like with Spectre and the hollowed-out volcano, I do like that we've got a proper villain's lair again, uh, because that was a bit lacking in the other Craig films, and it's good that they've, as we say, carried that through, and there's these weird Japanese influences with Sapin's no mask and, and you know, his costume and everything. I thought they were going to do a bit of a man with a golden gun as well when there's this sort of crazy water that everyone falls in and sort of, you know, starts dissolving. I thought it was going to be one of those things, oh, one person drops in it, and then that brings the whole island down. That's what they missed. They should have brought Mary Goodnight back and she just starts accidentally pushing henchmen into the water. Or he's like Christopher Lee. He has no idea how science works. He has no idea what the nanobots actually are. It also turns out he doesn't really need to know what all his poisons do since they sort of present that garden and then don't really do anything with it afterwards. Should we talk Safin actually now that we're on him? A curiously underwhelming villain, really. I mean, he's neither a major physical threat nor does he feel particularly like a mastermind, even though he has completely out-masterminded Blofeld, the greatest of all criminal masterminds, and done away with Spectre. But apart from me, he has this sort of backstory and this kind of connection with Bond, which they go into a little bit. I don't know, it just felt very curiously underwhelming. I just don't think Rami Malek is sort of in the same league of gravitas and kind of menace, I guess, as Javier Bardem and Christoph Waltz. And so I think just doesn't have the same impact for me. Yeah, I think, again, I don't know if it's because he's, he's a little bit younger as well. Obviously, you know, Javier Bardem and Christoph Waltz are a little bit older, so you know, they've probably got that that aged look and it sort of it gives them a bit more, you know, that sense that they're more world-wise and a bit more experienced in terms of what they've they've done as villains. I must admit, that scene in Cuba where the flame inspector agents get, you know, where the, the DNA nanobots kill them, it did put me in mind of the Indiana Jones films where, you know, it's the face melting or it's Julian Glover kind of aging prematurely. I, I was put in mind of that. So again, it was sort of comical. It was, dare I say, it, it felt a bit Casino Royale 67. Oh, that's, uh, that's harsh, Phil. That's a bit too harsh. That's a terrible film, Phil. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said there about uh, Malik as the... Or Safin as the main villain. I think he, with that potential that I spoke about at the beginning, it's a real shame that they didn't really develop it in a very interesting or, or horrifying way. And the fact that he just kind of lets the kid go after she bites him on the finger, what's that all about? Yeah, it's like, why even bother taking her off and kidnapping her in the first place? It, it makes very little sense. It's kind of retreading ground that they sort of did better with Silver in Skyfall, isn't it? This idea 
of the spiritual damage of the people involved in this world, which would cause a very John le Carre uh, dimension to bring in as well. But they never really delve deeper into that as to what his particular motivation is, because he's sort of just on a bit of a revenge mission against Blofeld and, and Spectre. For the entire thing and so then you're thinking well okay i get that he's learned of this weapon and, and taken a hold of it because he realizes he can use it to kill specter but then we never really go beyond that to work out why he's then suddenly taking it to wipe out millions and millions of people we're, we're not given enough of his character and his psyche to know why he's made that huge leap in ambition suddenly We've talked a little bit about the MI6 Massive. Uh, M, I think, is great again, Ray Fines. I love how that fraught relationship that him and Bond have. They're not as jovial and cuddly as Bond and Judy Dench. They don't really like each other very much. And that's kind of pushed to the limit here. And, of course, that leads to, in that scene in the office, when they finally confront one another face-to-face, -face, I think the angriest Bond M exchange we've ever seen, complete with a jibe about M's drinking habit, uh, from Bond and that sort of barb about mm, this desk seems a bit bigger or have you got smaller you know but there's a really lovely stuff there you know I, I think those relationships with Bond and his MI6 teammates are pushed to the limit in this in a way which justifies them perhaps not having very much screen time I think Money Penny Action Hero is again a bit shafted in this one which is sort of unfortunate Although I was going to mention, if we go right to the end of the film, M doesn't seem very good at maybe he is drinking too much because he had to take out the book to read 10 words of Jack London's quote. <laughs> and then when he put it down, I was thinking, it's not really Dame Judy, is it, with the Tennyson poem? <laughs> no, that, that could be the problem with the end of this film summed up, couldn't it? Not as good as Skyfall. Um, yeah, and, and the fact that he's got two scotches on the go as well. Maybe he's waiting for everyone to leave the office in that end scene. He's like, oh, I might as well have both of these, Mr. Jones. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is M just always pissed? Is this the problem? He's just always, you know, sloshing about, just going like, oh, I think you should do this. Yeah, go ahead explain... with the Hercules project. Yeah, that's what I know. That's the never say never again, M, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I've got no diplomatic clearance to fire these missiles. Fire them anyway. <laughs> Edward Fox's M would have fired him in like the heart, but he wouldn't have even waited for Bond to get the blast doors open. Fire a rocket now, and then we'll have a game of croquet and share in my club. I'll tell you what, M is really sort of on a bad one, isn't he, when he keeps that Dr. Borak guy employed for 10 years off the book. I mean, it's it weird, that Doctor, because he turns more and more into one of those meerkats as, as the sort of film goes on, doesn't he? He's sort of broadly okay at the start, and by the end, he's like, yeah, I've created the web, but you'll never stop it. You'll never get this. Blah, blah, blah. I hate that character. I hate... The reason why I hate him is in the final sequences when Nomi has obviously got him captured. She could easily just shoot him and he's still going, oh no, you will not stop us and all this. And then she just punches him in the face. And it's just one of the most irritating lines. Of, oh my nose. And it's just like, why? 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 This isn't funny. This is not funny. This is just embarrassing. Great that he managed to take out all of Spectre, isn't it? Oh, I did all I took out all of Spectre. You can't beat me. Na, 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 na. And quite ironic, considering all of the ridiculous sci-fi, he just switches a USB, doesn't he? He must have done a lot of work on that other USB, hasn't he? I'd have loved it if he'd have plugged the changed one in and it just says, this file cannot be read, because it's just, you know, USBs infamously always break when you need them. 
Oh no, system crash. So I need two for one meerkat gold. I did it briefly going back to Jeffrey Wright's demise as Felix Leiter. Of course, Felix never has a great time on our podcast. And it's a real shame, I feel, because Jeffrey Wright has been a miserable sod, hasn't he, for the previous Daniel Craig installments. Now he finally gets a bit exciting. And then you can't appreciate that because he's been knocked off a few seconds later. To be honest, killing Felix is a, is a mistake. It's just this sense that I don't really understand why they needed to do that. Because if, all right, fair enough, if Jeffrey Wright doesn't want to come back to play the character, that's okay. There's always, You can always move it on to another actor who can come in to be Felix Leiter. I don't really understand the point of killing him off. It is preparing you for where it's going, ultimately, isn't it? You know, we, we've sort of, Light has had his leg bitten off, but we've not actually killed him before, so now we're doing it. Same with Blofeld. Remember, in the official Leon films, we've never, by name, specifically killed a Blofeld. So it is preparing you for that thing of anyone can go in this, anyone can die, and indeed anyone will die in this. But it is such a shame because, again, the first half of this film is really great. Those scenes, him and Bonshire in Jamaica, are fantastic. You believe that they're two old comrades in arms and buddies. You know, Leiter's a lot better at that guessing game than he is um, than he ever was at poker, wasn't he? He should have just played that with Lachie. We wouldn't have needed Bond at all. You know, and, and, and sort of, I love that he is a bit older now and he's a bit schlubbier and, and he's sort of a little bit off the pace and needs to go to Bond to helping out. And I, I love that they're, they're sort of sparking off each other and just enjoying being mates. And I do think, therefore, it does make the death of Leiter land in a way that I found satisfying. I thought that was a, a perfectly fine thing to do. I guess should we talk about Blofeld's demise as well? Because I actually found that as a bit of a shock, actually. You know, I think in this, again, he's kind of a bit part in it. And, and I genuinely wasn't, ex- until obviously you get the the sense that when Bond touches Madeline and you realise what's going to happen, up until that point, I had no idea that, you know, that Blofeld would actually get killed. I thought he would, you know, find a way to, you know, to manipulate his way out of it or, you know, that he would survive and probably carry on for future films so i kind of commend the producers and and uh, carrie fukunaga for trying something that was quite bold and quite brave but it's a bit of a naff way to go i mean the fact that it's you know it bond kind of just gets a bit grumpy and then just you know he doesn't even punch him he just sort of grabs hold of him and then you know tanner's there like a nervous bloody work experience boy going oh what do we do what do we do yeah, for me, Blofeld is weirdly reduced coming back as the sort of cod Hannibal Lecter in this. I mean, you know, my thoughts on Blofeld and where he should be and, and how you shouldn't really see him ever in these films is, is sort of well documented if you've listened to series one. But, but, you know, the fact that they keep him alive at the end of Spectre and then you bring him back just to give him one scene, him having lost his entire organisation now and then just be accidentally killed by Bond does feel a tad bit like they've underused him doesn't it yeah i think it's a bit of a shame really i feel like they maybe they're influenced by the reaction to the previous film the specter and people's bad reaction to how waltz's blofeld was was used and so they used him even less in in this next film um so yeah although i think i think stuntman dave Cronley did a great job big respect to a stuntman dave there I think he did the bit with the uh kind of the, the face all all gone because of the the nanobots yeah, he was hours in makeup. He was for that. Yeah, that's just stuntman Dave's face, isn't it? He didn't need any makeup. The years have not been kind since Dylan of the Day. It was that punch in the face from Pierce Brosnan that just it ruined him. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Blofeld sounds a bit camp. Oh yeah, you can't beat a camp Blofeld. Just remember Charles Gray. 
That's what he should have. He should have come out and he should have been in drag. That's what they should have done with Christoph Waltz's Blofeld in this. Come out and he's dressed as Mrs. Nesbitt. Big handbag and, you know, frilly dress. I thought you were going to say computer-generated Charles Gray just comes out. Oh, yeah, the nanobots just sort of recreate Charles Gray from scratch because they've got his DNA, haven't they? That's the other thing that they're not telling you about. Well, it wouldn't have actually mattered who you kill because the nanobots just rebuild them from the, the feet up. So what we're actually is this film should have been called Attack of the Clones. Maybe that's uh, how they're going to get out of it. Bond was cloned by nanobots before he got to blown sky high. Speaking of Bond clones, shall we, shall we move on to little Miss Bond herself, Matilda? This really worked for me. I thought this was a really fun, brave, bold surprise. And to be honest, very overdue because Bond has got around so much. It's astonishing we've got 25 films in and only now discovered an illegitimate offspring of him. Um, I, I thought, again, great idea, a bit of a wasted opportunity. I think there was, you know, possibly could have had Bond and her have to bond a bit more, a bit of comedy. Was there an action sequence sort of like, um, I think, hard-boiled, is it, when he's having a get-out the hospital holding the baby. Um, you know, it feel, feels like there could have been a bit more of that. They, they could have milked the humour of that a little more, of Bond discovering he's a dad. Yeah, so I think Matilda, it, yeah, as you say, Adam, I think it was a good idea to bring her in. I'd have actually liked it if at the end she'd have kind of killed Safin. I think that would have been quite a, you know, an unexpected way for, you know, if, if Safin's kind of got Bond injured and he's, and uh, Madeline Swan is kind of, you know, unable to help her and, and basically help, help Bond and, and basically Matilda, you know, shoots Safin, you know, and it kind of goes full circle because obviously that's what Madeline Swan did to him to start with and at the very beginning, you know, that might have been a, an interesting way to finish the film. But yeah, as, as you say, it's kind of Matilda doesn't really do anything. She kind of gets a bit scared and then loses a teddy bear and then bites Freddie Mercury on the finger and runs away. So that's it, really. If if you want a synopsis of Matilda, that's that's kind of all she does. Yeah, I'm not sure her killing the main villain. It's a bit Maggie Simpson, isn't it? Who killed Mr. Burns? <laughs> Who killed Freddie? I was about to make a really grim joke there, but I won't. Well, go on, see if it stays in. Well, no, I was about to say, Martin, you said who killed Freddie. I was like, well, AIDS did that, so... You sure it wasn't nanobots? <laughs> What, hiding as AIDS? Should we do it then? Should we talk about that ending? Do we have to? <laughs> let's do, let's yeah. just finish the review now. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. So we've talked about, I guess, the sort of dimension of tragedy in Bond, um, which has sort of been there since Honor Majesties. This idea that the way that Bond is brought into the intelligence world he articulates this M with M in Skyfall. He articulates it with Safin here. The fact that they are orphans, the fact that violence has been visited upon them and that therefore they become violent men who are sort of cursed with this cruel irony of sort of killing all those whom they love or are close to. This is, I guess, the sort of crazily literal sort of version of that where Bond is infected in such a way that literally, if he goes anywhere near the two people he loves, he will kill them. Um, and so sort of, I guess, destroys himself instead of doing that. I just don't think it works in the context of this film, partly because the premise is too sci-fi and too kooky, and partly because it doesn't feel like it's been earned within the body of this film. The reason Tracy's death hits so hard in Honor Majesties is because the whole film is geared around it, and as a self-contained work, it's building towards it. The first hour of the film is just that relationship, 
And the reason Emma's death hits so hard at the end of Skyfall is because she's the star of the film. The whole thing is around her and her decisions and her life and what she's done. And the fact that this film is riffing so nakedly off of Honor Majesties, rather than trusting what it's built between Madeline and Bond, I think just reduces it too much. And it means it just doesn't hit you hard when it happens. And it's also crazily pointless as well, because like, okay, Bond has died, but so what? Either that's it and you finish the whole Bond series now, and after all of that, he's just dead, which feels incredibly cynical and a slap in the face to end on. And if you cast another actor and carry on again, it's equally pointless because it's like, well, it doesn't matter that he's died because some, some other bugger's just going to take over. Yeah, I agree, Adam. I think it's it's somebody that's that's maybe not grown up with the Bond franchise has tried to do their own homage to it and has got it completely wrong, I think. And that is really indicative of the ending because, you know, it probably would have been more impactful if if Bond had been you know, on the island injured, but he'd managed to get to safety. And then and then he rang Madeline and said, I love you, but I can never see you again. And it's, but I, you know, I can't tell you why. So that would have been a better way. That would have been more impactful because, you know, it's still the death of that relationship, but Bond is still active and it would have allowed him to then progress to a different actor because you can still relate back to Madeline Swan and the daughter and Bond isn't there, that probably would have been a better way to finish it, you know, where Bond kind of leaps into the sea or something like that, and the missiles hit just as he escapes. Yeah, I found it's oddly not very prescient, is it? Because he could have just survived and then FaceTimed them for the rest of his life, couldn't he? Just been on Zoom. He can still love his partner and his and his little kid. It's also very unbonded, isn't it? You imagine if Sean Connery's Bond had been told, you have a child out there. But you are physically unable to see them if you swat if you take on any of this. He'd have been like, "Oh, I'll shot the stuff then. Yeah, give me two." <laughs> yeah, I, th- I feel like well, we've been analysing this based on the Bond character, but I feel like it's all about Daniel Craig, isn't it? Really, he's become a lot more involved than any of his predecessors. I think he's a co-producer, isn't he, on this film? And I think that's. I think the ending is purely for him having a very emotional, supercharged ending. Uh, and so it's even though I do love I've loved Daniel Craig as James Bond, but I feel like they've maybe a bit self-indulgent on his part, perhaps. And the producers just giving him the farewell and then ignoring the actual logic of the, the Bond situation. Yeah. And like we say before, if you now, as you have to now, it has definitively taken the five Craig films and removed them from the entire rest of the Bond chronology. But in terms of where we go next, actually, very easy what you could do. Bring back Samantha Bond as Moneypenny, bring back John Cleese as R, bring back Judy Dench as M, and just assume Craig never happened and carry on post-Brosnan. Very, very simple. I think also just in terms of what you said about it not being very prescient and you just Zoom and FaceTime them, I think the COVID delay has probably, it might, we'll see how it goes, it might sour people's reactions to the end of this film. Because it just doesn't feel like the ending we deserve, having got through what we've got through and then waited so long for, you know, this great hero to have just been randomly blown up. I don't know, I felt a bit shortchanged myself. Yeah, I like to end in the cinema watching a Bond film feeling upbeat for the next chapter, which we should be, really, shouldn't we? We should. It's been a long time. Daniel Craig's been in the role the longest now of any other Bond actor, so we should be all hyped for the next one. And, yeah, I was a bit deflated, I have to say. 
Yeah, and, and I'm annoyed that I'm deflated by the ending because, as I say, and I have to keep reiterating this, I think the first half of this film is brilliant. I think actually everything up until that ending is is pretty decent. That they, they make you know certain characters should be stronger. You know, there's a little bit of a lack of atmosphere to the whole thing. It's much more workmanlike, but not in a bad way. But yeah, just that is such a sour ending and such a sort of unmerited ending. And, and you are absolutely right there, Martin, in what you say. It is indulgent to what Daniel Craig has done. And I love what Daniel Craig has done. I think he's brought the Bond films to the point where they are huge event movies again. You know, he, nothing should take away from that. And the fact that he has given the producers a free hand to be risky, to take big, bold, artistic decisions. It's just in this case, I don't think the biggest swing that they took has pulled off. And it does, therefore, yeah, it, it, as I've said before, it puts me in mind that actually had he sort of bowed out after Spectre, probably might have been the better move at this stage. To be honest, I think perhaps Daniel Craig should have maybe left the franchise after Skyfall, because if you look at how universally liked Skyfall is, that is kind of, for me, that is probably his best performance as Bond. If that had been Daniel Craig's last film, yeah, we probably would have been sad that he didn't get more films, but at least he would have left it on a high. It's, it's kind of like, I know you guys love Spectre, but I think Spectre for me is a bit too long. And although it, it develops the characters much better, I didn't feel that No Time to Die dragged as much. I, I think it kind of did flow quite well. But as I said, it kind of felt like they were, they were so hyper-focused on getting so much into just a, well, two hours and what, 40 minutes or so, that everything kind of gets lost by the end of it. And it's kind of, it's almost like, as you say, it's kind of the ending we deserved isn't there because, you know, you, you're kind of focusing on everything so much because so much else has happened that, you know, it's almost like the ending is an afterthought. It's like, well, we need to finish the film somehow. We'll just kill him off. That's That's what we'll do. And it's like, you know, they could have done so much more with what they had. Yeah, I, th I think, I think again, to accentuate the positive, you make a great point there. This does not feel like a two hours, 45 minutes film at all. It absolutely whizzes by. And that is a testament to the screenplay. It's a testament to the humour, testament to Fukunaga's direction, how sort of muscular and sort of, you know, workmanlike, but in a good way. You know, it's a well put together film, this. And it is an exciting, thrilling, fun film. Yeah, and, until that last 20 minutes. So I don't know, to kind of wrap up our discussion, where do we, I know it's very raw, isn't it? We've only just seen the film and we've only seen it once. But where where would you say, where does it fit in terms of the uh, the Craig films? Um, I'd probably go somewhere in the middle. I think it's obviously not as good as Casino Royale and Skyfall. Perhaps a little bit better than Spectre, I'm not sure yet. Um, I think it's pretty clear for me where it falls in, Craig. I, I do still think Casino Royale is, is the great masterpiece. I think Skyfall is close behind. I don't think this is as good as Spectre. I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of Spectre than, than a lot of people are. Um, I just think there's too much... There are too many issues in this, I guess. The ending aside, certain characters just not really as strong as they ought to be. So, yeah, for, for me, no, nowhere near the disaster of Quantum of Solace, we should absolutely say. It's not down the bottom of the Bond list at all. But yeah, I don't think it's near the top either. So we've, got, we've got our title now, Better Than Quantum. But only just. I think it's substantially better than Quantum. Yeah, yeah true. Can you swim? <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, so we move to our next segment, which is a look at the cars and gadgets. Over to you, Phil. Yeah, so it's quite a rich range of uh, different vehicles and gadgets we get in, in No Time to Die. Of course, there's a bit more focus on gadgetry as well, um, which we'll come to in a moment. But just to go to the cars and vehicles, so... Of course, we get the most used Bond car of them all. The Aston Martin DB5 makes another welcome return. This time with new gadgets. So we've got the headlight-mounted Gatling guns, which you get the sense could take down half an army. Um, we also get, as we've said, the Aston Martin V8 Vantage is made famous in the living daylights. We do also get a lot of new entries in the film. We get a lot of a very mixed range of, of vehicles. So it was estimated that more than $30 million worth of cars and vehicles were destroyed in, in the stunt work and the making of the film. Um, I think that's a new record in terms of, of what the Bond franchise has done in the past. Aston Martin and Land Rover and Jaguar as well have come back to their partnership with the Bond franchise. So we see the Aston Martin Valhalla, the um, the kind of infamous hypercar that Aston Martin has been developing. That only gets a very brief cameo. We also see that Nomi is driving the Aston Martin DBS Superleggera. We also get Land Rover has had a long and rich history. So the Series 3 Land Rover is used by Bond in Jamaica, probably a, a slight callback to... Um, you know, we'll see him Fleming living in Jamaica um, during his time of writing the films. There's also the new Defender. Um, so we see the 90 and the 110. So the 90 being the short wheelbase version and the 110 being the long wheelbase wheel version. I'm not sure how much Land Rover will be frustrated by this because there's also the Range Rover Sport SVR, which is used. And Bond manages to defeat all of them by using a knackered old Toyota Land Cruiser Prado, which is about 20 years older than all the vehicles in the film and is about four times less powerful. Um, and then if for any sort of petrol heads out there who wondered, there's also a Lancia Thesis, which is also driven by the um, henchman and might be one of the ugliest cars ever made. Um, so do keep an eye out for that one. And one of the more funnier facts from the film is so when the crews arrived in Matera to do the chase, they found that the cobble streets were covered in quite a slippery um, dust that had covered the whole surface, which made it too slippery for them to do the power slides and to, to you know, to obviously drive through the narrow cobbled streets at speed. So to get around this, the crew spent thousands of pounds on Coca-Cola, which they then poured across the cobbles to make them stickier. And that helped with the grip for the, uh, you know, the stunt driving. So that was one of the more unusual effects that they used to make the, you know, to achieve the, uh, the final shots. So quickly, just moving on to the gadgets as well. So No Time Today has had a mixed bag of, of uh, equipment. So we get a bit more from Q Branch this time. Um, so, of course, we get the um, the Omega-sponsored watch, which is also an EMP detonator. Perhaps a little callback to GoldenEye. Obviously, the, a lot of talk about EMP and, you know, the Brosnier of the watches being quite integral to the plot lines. So the Paloma also gets quite an interesting gadget with the lipstick earpiece holder. Obviously, that's quite a, a neat little touch as well. So not just Bond getting the gadgets. Going more into the slightly ridiculous gadgets, of course, we've already mentioned the bionic eye. Not entirely sure where they got that from, particularly Blofeld being as he's locked up in Belmarsh. So, you know, I don't really understand how he can design that from where he is. We also, of course, have mentioned the nanobots as well. Again, a little bit far-fetched, if we're being honest. You know, we're not molecular scientists or anything, but 
we're not entirely sure that that technology is is kind of believable. It probably would have been more believable to bring back the Aston Martin Vanish, to be honest. That probably would have been, you know, closer to science fact, let's be honest. A couple more sort of um, minor gadgets as well. Of course, we've mentioned the magnets and there are sort of micro detonators and things like that, which are quite cutting edge. Um, but other than that, you know, not as many gadgets as we've seen kind of in, in previous series. You know, you look at the Brosnan or Roger Moore era. But I think this is a, a pleasing look at perhaps the future of, of the Bond franchise. If, if they Obviously, if they do move to a new actor, we may see more gadgets to come in the future. Thanks a lot, Phil, for that summary there of the cars and gadgets. Quite interesting that it had coke-laden streets. Uh, that would have been interesting in Die Another Day, wouldn't it, if they needed more grip on the ice, just Jim Dowdle throwing some coke cans. <laughs> I'm sure he'd have been happy enough to sauce and drink them. Me. It was all me, James. It's always been me, the author of all your pain. So it's over now to Adam. Buy the book, some of the links back to the Fleming work. Yes, Buy the Book is back, uh, pleasantly enough. So going into this film, obviously nobody knew anything about the plot, and so I was slightly concerned whether there'd be anything to say in this section. As it turns out, if you've read Ian Fleming's You Only Live Twice, there's quite a lot to say in this section. Um, so in context, You Only Live Twice is one of the very last Fleming novels. It's the penultimate one. And it comes at the end of the so-called Blofeld trilogy, introduced in Thunderball and Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which novels both very closely follow what happens in those films. So in the novel You Only Live Twice, Bond is a broken man after, obviously, the death of Tracy. Uh, but Blofeld is identified in the novel. He has retired from active criminal duty to his secret island in Japan, which features the Garden of Death, which is full of poisonous uh, plants and flowers. So that whole element of Safin's island in the film is lifted wholesale from Blofeld's island in the novel You Only Live Twice, as is the idea that Bond has to sort of go into it and infiltrate it. Uh, and once he does, actually, uh, he kills Irma Bunt and he kills Blofeld. And the way that he kills Blofeld in the novel You Only Live Twice is virtually identical to how he ends up killing Blofeld in the film No Time to Die, i.e. with the specific words die, Blofeld, die, and with an attempted strangulation. He actually does strangle him to death in the novel rather than rub off some crazy nanobots, which presumably were a bit beyond Ian Fleming's brain at that point in the early 1960s. Uh, in the course of the only live twice, however, in that fight in the Garden of Death, Bond uh, gets amnesia in the sort of aftermath. And so he sort of returns to Kissy Suzuki and indeed marries her and has a child with her. He's not born uh, in the course of the novel, but he does leave uh, Kissy in a state of pregnancy. She eventually gives birth to James Suzuki, the child of James Bond, who in a later sort of post-Fleming continuation novel is killed as a man and Bond is, is sent out to avenge his son's killers. So the idea of Bond having a child, it's not that radical. It's there in Fleming, actually. It's always been there. Uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is actually the other book which is hugely riffed on in this, um, as, as is the case with the film, uh, certainly in terms of the bio-warfare plot, in terms of Bond sort of being in this doomed relationship with the love of his life. Of course, it's not... Uh, 
the wife who dies in this one. Uh, and of course, that catchphrase we have all the time in the world. It is the, it is the phrase that unites Bond and Tracy. In this, it's repurposed, becomes the phrase between Bond and Madeline. There's also an interesting, I think, link to Diamonds Are Forever, uh, the novel, the fourth James Bond novel, a very early one, in which Tiffany Case actually sort of threatens to return. At the end of that novel, uh, she moves into Bond's apartment in London. And so the idea of Madeline Swan as a returning female character, the origins of it are sort of there in the novel version of Tiffany Case. Uh, but between that and From Russia With Love, they do actually break up, not because Bond feels he can't trust her and leaves her on a train, actually because they realise they just can't live together and she cannot be part of the life he has and therefore leaves him for someone else. Um, but I sort of feel like there's a little bit of a sort of riff on, on that character going on. Um, weirdly, the nanobots, I think, do sort of feature or something very similar to them in one of the abandoned ideas for Timothy Dalton's third Bond film. Uh, if you read Mark Edlitz's book, The Lost Adventures of James Bond, you'll read a little bit more about that. But it is weird how that sort of has come full circle. Uh, but then the last thing to say on Fleming is, of course, we are back in Jamaica, the absolute favourite location of Ian Fleming, home of Goldeneye, where he wrote all the books, and a prominent player in the novels Live and Let Die, Doctor No, and the very last novel, The Man with the Golden Gun. So very much Bond coming home to roost uh, in the film by going to retire in Jamaica, just as Fleming did. Thanks a lot, Adam. I think it would have been quite interesting, that third Dalton film, wouldn't it? I might have believed the nanobots a bit more if Dalton was talking about them. Tim Dalton versus the nanobots. DNA profiling. I go near you, I'll kill you. You sound a bit more like Jonathan Rhys Davis there. He'd have come back for the film as well. <laughs> yeah, with one-legged Felix Leiter. Now I know you! Oh, no. You're that secret agent! That English secret agent from England! Now it's a return to my old segment, Now I Know You, a look at the callbacks to previous films. So there is only one place to start, and that is on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Heavily influences, well, not just influences, it's a, a copy and paste job of title song, lyrics and script at the beginning and end of No Time to Die. Of course, a matter of personal opinion, whether you think that enhances the storyline here or perhaps diminishes the memory of the earlier Lazenby film. The other big callback is obviously Dr. No. Now, before the film's release, many people speculated that Lucifer Safin was in fact Dr. Julius No. That didn't turn out to be true, but we still get a nice callback here to the first Bond film with the Dr. No coloured spots appearing in the title sequence as well as the Jamaican setting. In terms of vehicles, as Phil's already mentioned, we get the return of the Aston Martin DB5 and V8 Vantage. We also get the Gravity Plane, an airborne vehicle that turns into a submersible, hearkening back to a more famous land-based vehicle that also went underwater. I did also enjoy the callbacks to previous actors who'd played M. We get those oil paintings of Judy Dench, and Robert Brown in M's office. I mean, Dame Judy is really raking it in if she gets an appearance fee for these Bond films because she's managed to be in them without being in them. And we get a return of her lovely bulldog as well. Jack the Bulldog makes another appearance, the inheritance gift from M in Skyfall. And the other callback that I really enjoyed was when Bond kills the double agent, Logan Paul or Ash Ketchum or Logan Ash, whatever his name is, Bond strikes that car down with some vengeance, bringing back memories of Sir Roger and Locke in For Your Eyes Only. 
And then we get a whole host of smaller callbacks, which nonetheless are very entertaining for Bond geeks like us. I noticed that Madeline's childhood home has that large lake where Safin saves her, which is fairly similar to Bond's childhood, the, uh, the lake in Skyfall that we see. There's a return of the Delectado Cigar, which seems to be Lighter's calling card in Jamaica, which is also the brand that Brosnan's Bond tracks down in Die Another Day. We have Nomi taking off her wig in Bond's bedroom. That's not the first thing I thought you'd take off. Similar to double agent Rosie Carver in Live and Let Die. And in that great Cuba scene with Anna de Armas, we get Bond flinging the drinks tray at the Borat scientist at the Spectre party. Quite reminiscent, I thought, of uh, Odd Job. So uh, that was uh, that was all of the, uh, the callbacks that I could find. I'm sure there were plenty more. So if you found any more interesting ones, do get in touch with the show. I'd be very interested to, uh, to hear them. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. So our next segment is Q Branch. The questions from you guys. What did we have this week, Phil? We actually had a great message from, uh, from John from Behind the Stunts. So he was actually asking us, during the Roger Moore era, have we ever noticed just how bright Roger Moore's fingernails are? Um, apparently in every film, his fingernails get brighter as they go. This is just what I've been asked. So he wonders whether this is maybe also a question for Gareth Owen of, of whether, you know, Roger Moore's had really good, nicely manicured fingernails or, or whether it was um, just something with the dodgy lighting that just made them look quite bright. Um, so we will bear that one in mind. Guys, I'm not sure if you've got any theories on that one, whether whether Roger Moore was, you know, going for manicures every day. No, I've never noticed this. Can I just say, I, I do miss the days when being a Bond fan was, was sort of wondering, oh, is, he, is Roger Moore's fingernails? What's going on with Roger Moore's fingernails? Rather than being plunged into existential crises about Bond having been bumped off and all the rest of it. That was the good old days, wasn't it? Shame we can't have them back. You never know, maybe they'll come back. Maybe It's a bit of trivia though, guys. If, if you are sort of watching the Roger Moore era again and you do notice that um, in any shots where it shows his fingernails, maybe they do get really bright and uh, it could just be the cinematography or it could be that, you know, Roger Moore was really careful about his, uh, about his fingers. I'm just picturing Roger Moore now on the island at the end of No Time to Die, just looking at his fingernails. <laughs> These missiles are brightening up my nails nicely. <laughs> I have to say, I saw him on iPlayer, that, um, that programme Premium Bond, uh, this week for the first time, which was Mark Gatiss and Matthew Sweet just sort of talking through the six actors who played Bond. And for the most part, they're just sort of reiterating things we've already said. Uh, I think it was made before our podcast, I just hadn't seen it. But Mark Gatiss said something I thought quite amusing about A View to a Kill, which is actually, if you watch it from the mindset that actually this is just a random old man who thinks he's a spy, it massively improves the whole film. Are they insinuating that basically Roger Moore has dementia and is just wandering around Paris thinking he's a spy and just sort of messing things up? Well, of course, what it actually makes it is the Don Quixote of Bond films. A guy who thinks he's one thing, but actually it's just an old man running around making a nuisance. Okay, thanks, Adam. So, and just as I say, we've, we've already kind of covered a couple of questions in the actual episode as well. But one thing I wanted to ask you guys as well, obviously next year, 2022, is the 60th anniversary of the Bond franchise. It's going to be quite a momentous birthday for, you know, obviously for the, the film franchise as a whole. 
what would you guys like to see them do f- to mark the occasion? Would you like them to see maybe kind of, you know, more intimate performances of Bond? Would you like to see maybe like a, a concert to celebrate the Bond songs or maybe, you know, sort of outdoor um, cinema experiences where you can watch the old films together and we can all come together as a Bond community? Well, I think Adam's already covered this in his answer about bringing back all the previous actors from Die Another Day and making Die Another Day 2. The 60th anniversary special. Lee Tamahori, he comes back, he can direct it. Let's get Bronholm back. I think Bronholm would come back. Yeah, but he wants to come back as a villain. This is the thing. It's, he's not coming back. He doesn't want to be Bond again because he's, he's bored of that, isn't he? He wants to be the villain. Oh, like if you said you can be Bond one more time, Piers Brosnan's going to say no. He'll want to come back all singing, all dancing, though. He only does musicals now. Maybe it's Die Another Day, the musical. So he just comes in singing like a, it, or, you know, he's, he's on his uh, kite surfer. He could, yeah, you could do it as a jukebox musical, couldn't you? He goes into the Ice Palace, it's Ice Ice Baby. That comes up. So Jonathan Price walks in and realizes he's in the wrong film, doing a number from Miss Saigon. <laughs> and he's in terrible yellow face. Okay, so thanks, guys. So that was Q Branch for this week. Again, if you do have any questions, suggestions or theories for us, we're always um, looking for your interactions. So please do send them in either to our Gmail account, which is rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Of course, all one word. Or to our Facebook, Instagram or Twitter sites. So uh, Facebook and Instagram is rogermorescubbyhole and on Twitter it's at morecubby. So that's M-O-O-R-E. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So we come to the end of the show, an emotional ending for an emotional film. The quiz is usually the death of me. It's over to Adam. What have we got? Thank you very much. It's an old favourite this week. As we've said, No Time to Die, the longest James Bond film of the lot. It's also the longest opening sequence of uh, the lot at 23 minutes. So it's higher or lower James Bond opening sequences. Tell you what, Phil, let's start with you. So... We're going to start with uh, the very first Bond opening title sequence, which is, of course, from Russia with Love. That's Red Grant killing, um, what's his name? I forgot. He's our favourite guy. John Ketteringham. John Ketteringham, the great John Ketteringham. That all happens. Can't believe I forgot you, John. All happens within three minutes. So from Russia with Love, three minutes. Casino Royale's opening sequence, the black and white, Higher or lower than three minutes long? I'm going to say long. I'm going to say higher. You're right to say higher. That's actually three minutes and 11 seconds long. So only by 11 seconds, but that's your first point. Well done. So, Martin, over to you. Casino Royale, three minutes, 11 seconds opening. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, gorgeous George on the beach. Higher or lower than Casino Royale? A very well put together pre-title, isn't it? The cinematography is very good. I feel like you need a bit longer to establish that, so I'll go higher. You're right to go higher. It's it's more than double the length, actually. It's six minutes and thirty-two seconds on a Majesty's. So, Phil, back to you. Goldfinger. Sean Connery wears a pigeon, blows up a factory, and goes shocking, positively shocking. Is that sequence higher or lower than six and a half minutes long? I'm going to say lower, but only just. You're right to say lower. It's four minutes and 52 seconds. So a decent bit lower, a minute and a half. So, Gold Martin, back to you. Goldfinger, four minutes, 52 seconds. The Living Daylights, Rock of Gibraltar, higher or lower than four minutes, 52. 
Hmm. I feel like this is a tough one. They're establishing Dalton. We get a couple of the dreadful double O's. The, 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 the more superior double O's. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say sorry, the, the highly experienced and, uh, and you know, highly creditable double O's. Who lose the, the mission immediately. Slightly. Yeah, they're that good. Yeah. I mean, I'm really not sure about this one, but there is quite a bit that happens, so I'll go higher. You're right to go higher. It's quite a bit higher. It's 7 minutes, 14 seconds, that opening sequence. So two all halfway through phil we're back to you so the living daylights for seven minutes 14 die another day zao's diamond face higher or lower than seven minutes 14 because yeah, because the thing is that all become there's also the bit where he kind of get launched into the uh the massive bell as well and he obviously gets arrested it's almost like its own little short film within the main film i'm gonna say higher but only just you're right to go higher. It's quite a lot higher. It's 13 minutes and 12 seconds, die another day. So a lot higher than you remember it being. It's quite a long one, that one. So, Martin, back to you. Die another day, 13 minutes and 12 seconds. Tomorrow never dies. White knight to black rook or black bishop or whatever it's called. The arms fair. <laughs> that was the previous quiz. I think I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on the basis that Tomorrow Never Dies is one of the shorter films, I'll guess that it's also fairly short, the pre-title, so I'll go lower. You're right to go lower. It's four minutes lower. It's nine minutes and 12 seconds, so nothing to separate you. Three all, last question each. Phil, let's see if you can keep the pressure on. So, Tomorrow Never Dies, nine minutes and 12 seconds. Octopussy. General Toro, sounds like a load of bull. The horse's ass. Fill her up, please. Manuela. And a lovely yeah, is, so what is it? So it's nine minutes was tomorrow never dies. Nine, nine, min, nine minutes and 12 seconds. Is Octopussy higher or lower than nine minutes? Oh, that must be close. Because the thing is, you've got, again, you've got so much in it where he's literally is arriving and then, you know, it takes him a good 15 minutes to put that tash on. So I think I'm going to regret this, but I'm going to say lower. You are right to say lower. It's seven minutes and 16 seconds. So full master Phil Martin, can you take it to a tie break? So Octopussy, seven minutes, 16 seconds. One film back for your eyes only. It's the grave of Tracy. It's blowers going down the chimney. I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel. Keep your hair on. Higher or lower than seven minutes, 16. Yeah, this one is tough as well, because I remember... It feels quite long when you're watching it. Is that just you on for your eyes <laughs> <Yeah>. in general? <laughs> in general, yeah, but also in this ridiculous part, like his stupid cackling laugh as he's flying the helicopter. <laughs> yeah, it feels longer, but against my better judgment, I'll go lower. You're right to go lower. It's one minute shorter. It's six minutes, 16. So very well done. Four months for both of you. We go to a tie break. You're going to need pen and paper for this because I'm going to take the closest answer. Until No Time to Die, the longest opening Bond sequence was, of course, The World is Not Enough. How long was it? In minutes and seconds, how long is the opening sequence of The World is Not Enough? We're in Bilbao, there's the Swiss banker, and then we go to the Q-boat on the Thames. Stop, stop, it isn't finished! Robert King bites it, M's booty call, he's no more. How long is it all happening? All right, we ready? Right. I'm ready. Yep. Okay, Phil, what have you gone for? Let's I've have got, a look. I think I've, 
I think I've got this way off, but I think I've, I've said 14 minutes and 53 seconds. 14 minutes, 53 seconds. Martin, what have you gone I've for? I've gone... I, I went 19 minutes, 30 seconds. 19 minutes, 30 seconds. I can tell you the actual running time was 14 minutes and 5 seconds. So, Phil, a fair bit close. You're only like 50 seconds out there. Nice. So once, again, once again, Martin, the quiz is your downfall. Phil yeah. wins it on the tie break. <laughs> A bit more dignity, no, I feel, on that one. Yeah, that was a good effort, mate. Yeah, I think we did well on that one. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for joining us in our review of No Time to Die. We'll be back again, of course. Our next episode, we'll be back to our Series 3 formula with another special guest interview. But in the meantime, do check out all of our previous Back Catalogue episodes. Thanks for joining us today. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Did you say there was a car, car called a Lancia Theses in this? No, it's a Lancia Thesis. So T A T S I Thesis. Thesis. Oh, okay. As in dissertation rather than thesis. Yes. As. Yes, well, I mean, it looks like I'm gonna I'm gonna share you a photograph of it, and if you're eagle-eyed and you're watching the film, you will see that it's uh, it makes a very brief appearance. So I, I shall I'll share this on our socials. But Phil, we'll this it. is not going to be great podcast material. You sharing a photo, is it? <laughs> no, but not just for you guys. Just so you can see just how awful it is. Next up on Cubbyhole, man typing. I'm just I've, right. I've found it. So this right. This isn't going in the episode. Also, I'm just showing you so you can see just how silly it looks. Oh, it is going in there, Phil. <laughs> it's you typing. This is this is the end of it. Yeah. <laughs>